Happiness runs in a circular motion. Thought is like a little boat upon the sea. Hello, and welcome to Campfires and Color Wars, a podcast about summer camps and the stories we love to tell about them. Like the time Avoda tried to motivate Michael Danziger by threatening to lock him out of his staff cabin if he didn't make a move on his camp crush. I'm Micah Hart, flying solo this week as my co-host Sarah Ballin is off traveling through Canada. And for the next 45 minutes or so, we want to press pause in the world around us and transport back to the days of our adolescence when the school year was just one long rest hour between days at camp. In uh, this week's episode, we are happy to be joined by uh, Abba Shali, Macy Hart, uh, and Ron Klotz, uh, who share many things in common, uh, the least of which is uh, they're both my camp directors growing up. And with camp kicking off really in full swing right now with all the Northeast schools out and all the Southern schools have been out for over a month by now, but really all of the summer camps are pretty much ongoing uh, or, or getting started uh, as we speak, or certainly when we recorded this, um, and thought it would just be interesting to hear a couple of longtime camp directors. Uh, Macy was camp director for 30 years. Ron was a camp director for 37. Uh, so just thought it would be really interesting to hear their perspective on the beginning of the summer and what it was like. Uh, and it was a really fun conversation. Um, they are uh, good storytellers. Uh, they are long-winded, uh, so uh, editing this was, uh, was, was a chore, and we may uh, f- try to find some opportunities to uh, take some excerpts uh, that, that didn't necessarily make it into this, uh, but were still good stories or good topics of discussion nonetheless, and, uh, and find room for them uh, maybe in, uh, in the off week between this and the next episode. But uh, really, uh, really, really enjoyed it and hope you enjoyed as well. And before we get to it, just a reminder that uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, please uh, give us a rating or a review on iTunes. Um, and uh, also want to say that uh, got a chance to be a guest on Unorthodox, a, a wonderful podcast put on by Tablet Magazine. Mark Oppenheimer, one of our former guests on uh, on Campfires and Color Wars, is one of the hosts of the show, and they did a summer camp episode uh, that dropped recently, uh, and they were nice enough to invite me on to talk about this podcast and uh, and memories of summer camp. It was a lot of fun. Please check it out. Uh, it's a great show in its own right. Um, so uh, without... Any further ado, uh, let's get into the conversation we had with Macy Hart and Ron Klotz. So we're we're so glad to have you guys here, uh, Macy. You you joined us for a uh, much much more somber, I'm hoping, episode. Though we'll see where where this, the conversation takes us tonight. Um, but, uh, I, I obviously am your child. Uh, so I grew up with you in, in, in your own home, but I also grew up with you as my camp director at Jacob's camp. And Ron, I grew up with you for eight summers, uh, at Gucci as well. Um, and with it being, you know, mid June, as we're recording this, we thought it would be fun to talk to a couple of camp directors about, you know, what it's like at the beginning of the summer. What, you know, how are you preparing for camp? What are the things you're thinking about? What are the things you're worrying about? Um, and Ron, you sort of gave us your a bit of your introduction uh, in, into how you got into it. But Macy, I'm not even sure. I guess I sort of know this story. But how did you get to be a camp director? 
Well, uh, Micah, I am um, a, an accident in the profession of being opposite of Ron, who knew what he wanted to do as far as becoming a Jewish camp director um, and learning about floors and portion control. <laughs> my, my, um, my entrance was I was one of those fully idealistic young people. Um, I was um, finishing at the University of Texas. I knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, knew I didn't uh, want any of the options available to, to me or to any uh, young males at that time, which were jail, Canada, Israel, uh, Vietnam. And none of those were of interest to me. And I've I, I trained and fought to, to learn how to be a draft counselor. So anyway, fast forward to the fact that I'm in October of 69, I made a call to Rabbi Hank Skirball, who to this day is one of my all-time greatest heroes in my life, um, to see if I could volunteer after having been president of Nifty in 67, 68, and it being just such an un believable experience for me coming out of this small country town where we're the only Jewish family. Um, I just wanted to give something back. That was something you did in those days. Uh, We were that group. And he said, well, don't come. I wanted to work in New York for Nifty. And he said, don't come here. Go to Mississippi. Just to clarify real quick, Nifty is the reformed Jewish youth group movement. Right. It it was... uh, used to be the National Federation of Temple Youth, and during my time period of Nifty, it became the North American Federation of Temple Youth. But in order to maintain all of the emblems and all of the, uh, uh, what do you call, notions that people buy T-shirts and stuff like that, they just kept it at NFTY. Um, anyway, being president of Nifty was an unbelievable experience. I needed to give something back called Hank. He said, go to Mississippi. We're going to open the camp this summer that you and all your peers uh, spent so much time trying to convince your parents that you wanted to camp and doing fundraisers and so on and so forth. Why don't you go there? And I said, absolutely. I'll do that. It's two years. So I went there for two years, knowing at the end of two years, I was going to go to law school. And because my birthday of December the 10th is the same birthday of the state of Mississippi. Uh, and because I'd been successful in being an elected official of Nifty, I was going to end up being the governor of Mississippi. I knew it could happen for a Jewish person. And my two years lasted for 30. Hey, Micah, did you know that your dad wanted to be the first Jewish governor of Mississippi? Is that is that family lore? Uh, I mean, I you know, I wouldn't say he thought he was going to be the first. I think he thought there might be several other Jewish governors before it got to him. But I know he wanted to be the governor because I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of leading the change. So anyway, so about 30 years at the camp, I became a camp director. And I think because I was 22, uh, I really started as the administrator that first summer, the regional director had to come, the beloved Rabbi Saul Kaplan. So as the administrator, and during that um, fall after camp, I was named the director. So I, I technically and literally got to be the founding director of the camp. 
and because the reform movement was a, a little bit concerned about the embarrassment of having a southern uh, camp, a Jewish camp in the south, and hoping that maybe the camp would fail in four to six years, that the um, they'd have a debt-free property that they could sell and create a resource. <laughs> so it was an extraordinary opportunity, great, great time, and there are so many stories um, that come from our time of not only being able to have impact with families, but be impacted by our campers who grew up to be adults. My history is completely different than Mesa's. I grew up in Olin St. Ruby. I was, uh, I even went to camp before. I was old enough to go to Olin St. Ruby. I went to uh, Federation camp in Wisconsin. Then I was a camper at Olin St. for three years. Then I was a staff member for 10 years. Wow. Uh, and I was, you know, all the way through until the, at the end of my staff years, I was assistant director. I left that job to go to HUC. I even came back to Olin St. During my first couple of HUC years to lead the Coliseum program, which was a Hebrew-speaking high school program, and uh, you know I wanted to be a camp director, but it wasn't see, Macy's vision much broader than mine. He he wanted to be the leader of the of the state. I just wanted to be a camp director. <laughs> I I, lo- I loved camp. Then while I was a student at HUC, the job in Zionsville at Union Camp Institute opened which is a two-hour drive from Cincinnati, and I got offered the job. So while I was a student, I got offered the job to be a camp director. And I didn't really want to take it because uh, I had a, a, two little babies and a wife, a Brazilian wife that I still have. And uh, I had a bi-weekly congregation in Dubuque, Iowa. I was a full-time student, and I said, you know, how's it possible to take this job? But then, then – I was advised by friends who said, you know what, these jobs, they don't come, they don't come around too often. There were nine camps. And Macy remembered that hardly any camp directors changed for years and years. Right. And uh, so, you know, when I went to HUC in 1972 and I was interviewed, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to be a, a, a camp director. I want to work with Jewish kids. I was just so happy when I... When Susan um, and I celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary, because that was the first time that I could say that I had had a roommate longer than I had with Klotz, because we were roommates and turned into such an extraordinary friendship over the years. For 27 years, we roomed together. And so my 28th anniversary with Susan was a milestone for me. I was very depressed to hear that. <laughs> Being a camp director is very much it's a singular job. And the only other people who understand that job are other camp directors. Even their wives don't understand so there, it's a natural thing to bond with the guys in your chabrata, the guys, the people, not the guys, the people in your movement that's in, you have contact with, because they understand the, they understand what, what camp directors go through. And camp directors, you know, uh, you know, we camp directors are like, you know, they they work when other people are off. 
No, we work weekends and summers. Well, just for the record, I was an assistant camp director at Green for two years. So I sort of have a taste. You know of, that. Yeah. So in the in the 90s, I was an assistant camp director. And I lived in Bruceville, Texas for two years. I call it my Jewish Peace Corps years because this is before internet. It was before... Okay cable tv it was like i don't even know what i did to pass the time in bruceville texas for two years um but yeah i mean it, it was working like people think that summer is just the summer but as a director or assistant director you're working all year long you're recruiting and you're planning and you're getting the kitchen floor done and you're hiring staff and you're you're figuring out how many horses you're going to need and where the barn's going to go and um you know and you're worrying about everything and but so when you have something that comes up and you want to talk to somebody, who are you going to talk to? Call your mentor. Call one of the other camp leaders. Yeah. So I think that's a very natural, normal thing. And our leaders were sometimes pretty volatile guys and pushed our buttons. And we had very spirited and sometimes very hot uh, discussions and even arguments. And then we would go out and have a stick. So what's a, give me an example. What's a, what's a garden variety subject that you would get uh, such intense passions about? We had a discussion we were at Kutz Camp, I remember. We had a discussion about should the camps provide condoms to their counselors. Remember this, Mace? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested in what, can, do you remember around what year this was? Uh, I'd say... Probably in the early 90s, maybe. Okay. That's just a guess. So anyway, it was interesting because the camp directors were completely divided on this issue. And uh, I wouldn't say the older ones because I was one of the older ones, but uh, on one side of the issue were those who said, it's not our place to uh, encourage sexual intercourse amongst our staff or whatever. And we shouldn't be part of that conversation. Then there was the other side, that the side I was on, that said, you know what? Sexual intercourse is part of the conversation already, even if we're in it or not. And we ought to be uh, interested in protecting the health and safety of our staff. Yeah, so, and I have, oh, sorry, go ahead. All right, go ahead, go ahead. I just said, I, and I remember a glib comment that I made that, Really, it should be censored. Um, and I said, well, it, at least it's uh, it's Jewish boys and girls doing this to each other. And so maybe we became the the, the place to make couples. Well, I mean, that's the whole point of Jewish camp. You can talk about the point of Jewish camp all you want. But at the end of the day, the point of Jewish camp is to introduce Jewish well, at that time, Jewish boys to Jewish girls and to make Jewish babies. Now it's, you no, know, no, 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 that's wait, a little wanted, bit more open. No, but. No, 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 no. We wanted to make Jewish couples. We didn't want to make Jewish babies. Right. Well, to make Jewish couples <laughs> who eventually would make Jewish babies. Uh, I did want to ask, since this is, you know, the beginning of the summer, what what was what was your attitude when you were approaching the beginning of camp? Were you Were you anxious? Were you excited? Did that change over the years? Because... You know, you mentioned it, Ron, about having to worry about everything. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I definitely can't imagine it now. But even when you guys were in the in the prime of your camping careers, the amount of things that you had to worry about and pay attention to. What was your approach? How did you handle that? Well, I'll I'll lead off because I'm the younger of the two of us. Um, I was. Um, 
I was still worried about where I was going to get all the staff that didn't come into my office during the normal day, like in other parts of the country. Jewish kids walk into my office in Utica, Mississippi, and say, hey, I'm looking for a job at a Jewish summer camp. You got any? Well, you know, that's how I got my first job at summer camp. I basically... I, I don't know who I called. It was pre-internet, but I was like, I want to work at a Jewish camp. Where should I work? And I literally called like three camps. And the reason I ended up at Green was because the woman who answered the phone was the nicest out of all of them. I should have called Jacob. I should have called Jacobs because I'm sure the woman who answered the phone at Jacobs would have also been equally as lovely. You're a chauvinist pig. Why would you think it had to have been a woman? Because this was like in the 90s. <laughs> Well, so I can remember because I've had an experience in the Institute world now uh, that reminded me of camp when I'm a week away and my song leader drops out from camp and you just can't have camp without a, a great song leader. True. And I, had, I had moments like that. But, but again, Ron will remember this and I'm going to have to censor my answer. But most of us really felt strongly about the roles we played. And it was an insult in lots of ways when we would be at parties with people who, who as Ron mentioned before, nobody knew what our jobs were. Somebody would say, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a children's camp director. I'm a camp director. And the comments immediately were, oh, is that a full-time job? Or oh my God, what a wonderful thing that is to be able to spend your summer working with the kids. And then the question would follow, what, what do you do in the winter? Like everything? Ron, no, Ron knows what my answer was. So I'm just going to clean it up for you. I was at this party here in this uh, area. And, um, and Susan, unfortunately, had to transcend many years to be an adult very quickly because uh, she was 19 when we met, when we got married, she was 20 a month later. So she had, she couldn't be, um, you know, one of those, uh, young folks who still had a junior and senior year of college to go in a, in a, in a great campus. So I just kind of got my, I got so offended one day and I don't know where it came from, but I was at this party and it was a, a very nice couple, but very prim and proper. Uh, nice people who are members of their community, but they were in my age range. And we got into this conversation. It's small talks. One of the reasons I hate to go to parties. I don't like to do the small talk chit chat stuff. And, um, and we got into the conversation, you know, and I told him, uh, Oh, that's so nice. But you know, is that a full-time job? And I said, yes. Yeah. Well, my goodness. So, so what do you do? What do you do in the winter? So I said, in a in a not such a nice way, we we just have a lot of sex. And that's what we do all <laughs> the time. And the woman started screaming because I had used a certain word that she was not accustomed to. Does it rhyme but with duck? It, I'm not going to say. Okay. Um, but I also remember going to the very next camp director's gathering, wherever we were, and declaring that as the official answer that the camp directors would now give because every one of us was asked that question all the time. Right, Ron? Yeah, I have a more ludicrous uh, scenario. 
I'm in Des Moines, Iowa. It's uh, January. It's like uh, 15 degrees below zero. There's 20 inches of snow on the ground. I'm speaking in a synagogue on a Friday night about camp. And a fellow comes up to me at the Onyx Shabbat and says, well, you're a camp director. What are you doing in the wintertime? And I'm, I'm like speechless. I'm, say, I'm saying, wait a second. I live in Indianapolis. I'm in Des Moines. It's the middle of the goddamn winter, and I'm speaking about camp. What do you think I do in the wintertime, you know? <laughs> I had more fun with my answer than you I had. didn't say that. I didn't say what Mason said either. I was too <laughs> chicken. Beginning of summer is a, a very difficult time for a camp director. Um, even if you have a camp where all the staff's in place and nobody drops out, still, with all these waves of camp staff, people that come in, I mean, first, you know, first leadership staff and your cooks and your infirmary staff and then your specialists and then all the madrichim, you know, and then the makonikim, the councils of training, whatever. And you have to get, you have to juggle all these balls and get them in motion so that every specialist knows what you expect from them and you have to inspire your staff and you have to work with all your leadership staff and you have to delegate and delegate and delegate until these balls start to roll. And as they start to roll, things may get a little bit easier, but at the beginning of the summer, it's very, it's very intense. You have, That's what I think. Yeah, you have five minutes to get it ready and establish what Ron's just talking about. When we started camp, what I would do is I'd put the whole staff out on this. They came to be known as the steps. And we started at noon when it was really hot. And I would just talk a little bit about welcome to camp. And then I would ask all the staff to think for a moment. Raise your hand if you ever went to camp. It didn't have to be this camp. And always 80% or plus, that's an estimate, but it was always a large number, had been campers. And then I would ask, for those people to put their hands down. If you didn't go to camp, raise your hand, didn't grow up at camp, and that group did. And I said, keep your hands high. And I would say to the rest of the staff, you look at those hands, those are the ones that you have to make sure that you don't exclude and that you bring them into the posture of this, this camp. And then I would say, now I want you to spend a minute and I want you to see if you can picture the best counselor, Micah, you alluded to this in another podcast. Mm-hmm. I want you to raise your hand if you can remember the best counselor. Raise your hand if you've got one of those memories. And all the hands went up. So then I said, put your hands down. Now raise your hand if you ever had a counselor that you thought was terrible and that you remember. And all the hands went up. And then I'd say, I just have one simple question. Which memory are you going to be? do you want to be? And that kind of helped start the intensity of an orientation that was the tantamount to a whole summer's camp um, direction and camp um, leadership for them with their kids in that very few minute exchange. And I think I, I think Macy, this was actually your idea that I did for years after I heard, I think I heard it from you. And that is, uh, we used to bring uh, parents into camp at staff orientation for a particular program. Yeah. We'd have uh, a, a parents from each age group in camp, this is before camp started, 
to speak to the staff members about what they hoped for that their kids would experience at camp. And the idea was to impress upon counselors that we are um, accepting these people's treasures, you know, their children. Yeah. And so, you know, camp's a lot of fun, but it's very serious fun. And you have to kind of understand, you know, you have to understand I have to understand what that's all about. I think that being a counselor in camp and being a unit is an unbelievable growing and learning experience. Uh, it's kind of learning how to be uh, a parent before you're, you know, before it, you're it, a parent. It's the training we never got before we had our children if we didn't have that experience. Um, the other thing is, and, and uh, yes, we did. We did that, and it was called the parents panel. And I would bring three or four in. But the thing that I learned from you involves you and a camper you had by the name of Micah Hart. And there were two things that happened that are of great memory to me. Um, Leah and Micah got to camp. Micah, did y'all start? To, did you and Leah go to, at the same time for your first Gucci experience? I think she went at least one year before I did. Okay. Well, I think it occurred to me when, when it was you because two things happened that summer that were impressive and depressing to me. One was, as soon as you got to camp, the camp director of Gucci, which, by the way, I need everybody to know, that I wanted, um, Susan and I, I shouldn't say I, Susan and I wanted our kids to have a camp experience. And, um, and the best way to do it, even though our counselors were trained that our kids had heard the word no and they never were to be given any. I don't know how I don't know how Siri got on, uh, <laughs> but I just. Uh-huh. What does what Siri think you want to know? It was dictate. I was dictating apparently. So I get this. Um, I get this call from the director of this said camp, um, Rabbi Ron Klotz, to tell me that my son Micah, and at this point I guess Leah had arrived in camp safely. And before that, I never did that. If I felt like if the parents didn't hear from me, <laughs> no news is good they news. Were there. And that was time consuming. But Susan said to me, she said, you know, Ron called and told us our kids got to camp. You don't do that. Why don't you do that? You're going to start doing that. So <laughs> from that point on, we would call the parents of the kids who flew in to let them know their kids were in camp. And the other thing I need to say about Ron Klotz, um, because I've, I've told it to his face and to many people, one of the things that I did early in my camp director's um, career in trying to learn was we always were out. We always ended in the first week of August because our camp, our schools in the deep south always started so early so i made it a point to get on a plane and go to at least two if possible three camps while they were still in session to see how the other camp directors did what they did and one of the things that i noticed was is that there were so many similarities and yet there were so many things again with the culture that caused us to do things differently so in the end Susan and I decided 
we want our kids to be able to not have to answer the question, do you think your dad will get mad if we break this window? Or do you know what's for lunch? Or do we get breakfast every day at camp? I mean, there were all sorts of really ridiculous questions that our kids could and, and would have been faced with. So we wanted them to go to camp to see that they were pretty normal human beings and that they could be liked for who they were. Nobody knew their father was the camp director. And after visiting all the camps, and the reason I chose Ron Klotz to be my kid's camp director. Was it because all the other camps were full? (laughs) But that's cute, Micah. That's really cute. It's because when I got there, the warmth that I felt from the staff, the dedication that I felt, I was hoping that this is what people felt when they came to Jacob's camp. This was the camp. It was it was in numbers wise pretty much the same. The relationships I liked. So our kids all grew up not only at Jacobs, but they all grew up at Gucci as well. So they had both worlds. And to this day, I think Micah, you would agree that you and your sisters have extraordinary uh, experiences having both of those different worlds in your impressionable times during. Um, preteen and teen years. I just can't imagine how bored I would have been not going to camp all summer. I mean, I never knew anything different. Uh, But I have a question. Y'all are talking about, you know, establishing, you know, the relationship with the staff and and worrying about everything. And and as you were both saying that, I was thinking about uh, the different reputations, if you will, that you both had from a camper's standpoint. Um, and I'm curious how you went about cultivating how, because one of the ways that you can not have to worry about everything is if kids know not to fuck with you. Uh, did my son say that word? Well, listen, you guys keep dancing around it. Y'all don't have to direct camps anymore. You can speak freely. Macy, the, the reputation you had was nobody wanted to cross you. Nobody like the the worst thing you could do at Jacob's camp was end up on the other side of your desk and not because you were fearsome in a physical sense, but just because (laughs) you, you just, you just had that thing of like, you don't want to be there. There's no answer that you can give. That's gonna, you know, we always said it was like you played chess. Everybody else was playing checkers, whatever argument they had, you were 20 moves ahead of why that was, the wrong answer, which was a lot of fun as your child. I can tell you that much. Uh, Ron, on the other hand, for you, I would say it was more of a physical presence that I think kids were, were a little scared of you. You were, you were big, you were gruff, you had a booming voice, you had a big beard. But I'm curious if either of those were things that you consciously like tried for or is it just the nature of your personalities to uh, to instill this sort of, hey kids, it's not worth your time to get to do something that's going to get you in trouble. Well, I got two answers. First of all, uh, my uh, you know as far you you should talk to uh, staff people that worked for me in my camp because I think you get a different answer. My door was always open and hung out at night. It was yeah, campers were intimidated by the camp director because I think that. Uh, you know, Macy used to say camp directors are conversation stoppers. You know, walk into a room, the conversation stops. 
there's something about being the director that people ascribe to you, whether or not you're got a beard or a big. I mean, I don't think it matters. You're the director. Uh, sometimes I had to actually be a good actor. Now, there would be kids that come to my office that I had to really be angry with, even though I really wasn't that angry with them. But I had to be the director. So, I mean, that happened. But, but let me tell you something. I don't, I don't think I cultivate, I don't think I tried to cultivate any image. Um, I felt that my, um, uh, how can you say my legacy in the camp from the beginning was on working with staff and teaching kids how to be good counselors. So yeah, and just to clarify, Ron, I mean, we all liked you. <laughs> we weren't we weren't necessarily afraid to talk to you, but you also still were intimidating well, enough as a camper that you know we didn't want we didn't want to cross you. Uh, I was such I a goody goody. You didn't have to worry about me, but you know some of the other kids. Um, all right, well, let's, let's move on to our uh, Campfires and Color Wars questionnaire. Title's still pending. Um, it's a few questions. We, we typically ask this of our guests. We, we've changed them a little bit uh, to maybe reflect a little bit more of your, uh, your, your roles as camp directors and not necessarily as, as campers or counselors. Um, but feel free to uh, you know, answer these as you see fit. Uh, so co- question one for tonight. What is the strange – we usually ask about a first camp kiss, but – What's the strangest camp relationship situation you ever had to deal with as a director? We used to have our campers write postcards home the first night of camp. You know, so every camper had to write a postcard home and get into dinner, whatever. That was like a ticket. And then, of course, we'd gather all the postcards up and then we'd read them because we wanted to see who was having a hard time <laughs> and who was doing okay. So the, the most popular postcard in the history of Gucci, Golden Union Camp Institute, was a kid who wrote home and said, Dear Mom, I hate it here. I'd rather fuck a cow. (laughs) Uh, Well, since um, (laughs) since I can get off of trying to figure out of what was the most difficult, I have a couple of postcard things too, but we we were... much tougher on our campers, Ron, than you are, because I required two postcards and one letter a week. And we had these big skits in the dining room to oh, suggest I've heard about those kind skits. of things. And some of these skits that these counselors put together, really memorable. But if a parent, and we kept records, and if a parent <clears throat> didn't write their kid within three or four days, we knew it. Counselor had to call the parent. If the parent acted not so nice, assistant director, or if it got to me, that was not nice. Um, So I've got two. I want to tell you one postcard story, and then I'll tell you. I just decided which one I'm going to tell. So the postcard story was we had this really cute little guy. He was about eight or nine years old. He had full uh, sandy blonde hair, and it was kind of like in one of those beetle cuts. And this was in the 70s. And I liked parents to bring their kids to camp uh, themselves so they could see the facility. So when a kid hit a ball and said, I hit the ball all the way to this uh, past third base, the parent could write back and say, well, I know how far that third base was from you. uh, So way to go or hit it to the wall. So this kid kept writing every postcard and every letter had to be um, 
talking about a little bit uh, about camp or so on or ask questions and we coach parents on what not to say in letters and so this kid had been asking about his parakeet and so every week so in the third week of camp his parents had not asked answered his question answered everything else in the world i love that you like the camp and hope you're having a good time so he wrote back on his postcard dear mom and dad i have asked you about my parakeet whatever tweety bird you haven't answered if you don't answer when i get home i'm gonna beat the shit out of you story was going <laughs> oh yeah um all right let's move on question two uh what was the most memorable camp performance you ever witnessed uh in your in your times at camp well it, it's tough because you know both of our camps were very uh, artsy camps and we were all, always putting on plays at gucci and Broadway musicals and but i remember once uh, we used to have um I don't know if they still do. At the at the end of orientation, we would have a staff makeup for so like the this is the night before camp started or two nights before camp started, and we would do a whole night of performances, all put on by staff. Everybody would play, you know, uh, different groups of staff uh, units would put on would write songs, and so there was. I won't tell you who this was, because I didn't particularly like the guy very much, and he was only at camp one summer, and but he went out to be a cantor. And he um, he sang a song in the staff orientation, which is just the most innocuous song, a cliche kind of song that everybody would say is a cliche. It's um, Kumbaya. 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 I'm trying to, trying to remember the word. Kumbaya. So Kumbaya, you know, we used to have a Kumbaya moment. And Kumbaya is like represents all this uh, sappy stuff from the folk era. So this guy sang the song Kumbaya, and the song that he sang, I mean, the, the verses that he created were all kind of life cycle or the circle of life kind of um, verses. You know, someone's crying, someone's laughing, someone's cursing, someone's praying, someone's dying, someone's born. But when he got to that at the end, I mean, and he was, it was very dramatic the way he played the guitar and sang this thing. And it was like you could hear a pin drop in the room. And, you know, this is 40 years ago, most, more, yeah, it's 40 years ago. I remember the moment very well. And it, it was just phenomenal. That's what came to That's mind. That's a nice moment. Yeah. So, so my problem with trying to honestly answer this is because of the things that we uh, encouraged our staff to do um, in the dining hall <clears throat> um, because um, of the comment I made earlier about um, kids and wanting them to build their self-esteem and to have a four-week break in the action from the cruelties of the sandlot. So opening night at camp was always a big, big, major production and staff were, two staff members were selected to create it. <clears throat> the whole staff had to participate in it, and it was musical, and it was comic. Um, and at the end of camp, there was a another one, and people were selected. And some people 
we had hoped they considered it an honor to be selected. I think they all thought it was a lot of work as well. We had so many brilliant ones that just would take, just take your heart away because of original songs and original things. But some of the best performances, so I have to do plural, were watching a classical trained counselor pianist or a classically trained guitar player or somebody who was the song leader who was very popular who would get up and do a non-song leader type thing and watch these kids say, you know, such and such, my counselor played the piano like that. I'm not going to fight with mom anymore about my piano lessons. I want to play. I want to play like Mike, so to speak. And some of them were just unbelievable. And one of them was an opera piece. And it just blew us away. I can't even remember when it was, but it, it was a verification of the fact that when any when any kid did a skit in the dining room, whether it was by themselves and were the worst singer in the world, but they summoned up their guts and they got up to sing, they got a standing ovation. It was always led by the staff and the older campers who had grown up seeing that. If somebody played the piano and all it was was Mary Had a Little Lamb, they got a standing ovation. And when they got to play ball because they didn't get they didn't strike out and they got to feel like what it was like for the ball and the bat to touch, which they wouldn't have gotten to do in the sandlot. Um, those were all memorable. And there's just a flood of those in my head. I, I really can't, I can't find one that I could isolate. They were, it's just a big, big salad bowl to me. Sorry. I was thinking about when Bare Naked Ladies performed uh, at Gucci, although I wasn't there for that, sadly. That was that was second session. I was first session. Most uh, people didn't even know. You know that they were very young then, and uh, I don't think the campers even know who they were. Staff people do. Right. Yeah, and that's because true. Because we had a program director who just spent a year on kibbutz with their lead singer. You know, and they were good buddies, and these two guys were performing in Indianapolis. He got to become to camp and break our young sport, our color wall. So it was, a, it was, a, it was phenomenal to the people who realized who they were. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, it's a great story to tell later because they became very famous. Right. Well, you know, Bob, Bob Dylan went to Camp Hartzell, which I guess was probably not that far from you at, uh, at Olin Sang Ruby. This uh, was uh, Minnesota, out of Minneapolis, right? Um, all right, number three. What was your personal most embarrassing moment in all your years as a camp director? Uh, I had, uh, there was one staff member once. I was going to, first of all, I was going to say when I retired, they made a big party for me and a lot of people spoke and they said some really nice things about me and whatever the whole evening. And that was kind of very weird. So I don't know. But that's hokey to say that was the most embarrassing moment. But I did have one staff member that was a very obnoxious kid who I really didn't like to be around. And uh, this is the only time this happened. I was the camp director for 37 years. One night, I'm in the, in the dining hall, the Hanover, with a bunch of staff people. And this kid's next to me. He was a counselor. And I don't know what he said. But I looked him right in the face and I said, fuck you. 
I never ever said that to anybody ever. And I stormed out. I don't know. And I, I, I felt so bad about it that I actually <laughs> went. I don't know if I went back the same night or the next, whatever. I singled this kid out, took him aside, and completely apologized. I was very embarrassed by that. Well, I didn't have one of those yet, and I'm trying to think about the many embarrassing things. I I, I did things at those um, legendary staff meetings that Micah alluded to. Um, Like, um, I would on purpose try to act cool, and I would talk about Pahish, this group that (laughs) grew. You mean fish, Macy? And Bruce Springsteen, I would do all those sort of things to show how cool I was to the staff. I wrote about that today by coincidence in a small obituary type thing about a <clears throat> about my nephew who passed away a couple of days ago at the age of 39. And one of the things that he did in his younger years was follow fish all over the country, put a hundred thousand miles or more on his car. <clears throat> And I, I put in parentheses, at camp, I used to, so I could be cool to the third graders, I would always go around and call them Pahish, something that nobody who's reading this letter would not know about. And anybody who is in uh, my age group would have never heard of to this day. Um, there were lots of opportunities for us to, to be embarrassed, plenty um it's uh it's interesting i always was embarrassed by the nice things that were said the tributes and so on but i always used to say and it's coincidental i never let it go to my head my hat size is still size small ron i told this story uh i think maybe on the podcast with your son but uh the the exchange that you had with that camper i had a, a similar exchange with you although it was not directed at me uh, one summer I got sick at Gucci and it was the old, I was in the oldest unit, uh, enough. And we had, uh, the, the three or four day camping trip and I had had an asthma attack and I had to go to the hospital. Oh, and, see, that's the other part of the one I was going to tell earlier too. Go ahead. Uh, and so, uh, as a result, I had to go late. And so you drove me and my counselor, uh, it was Jacob Alexander, out to uh, to the state park where where the camping trip was, and we stopped at McDonald's on the way. And I guess the service wasn't very good, or I don't know, but you got into it <laughs> with the the person uh, on the drive through. And I was again, you've heard Macy talk about how idyllic he wanted Jacob's camp to be. Well, I grew up in that environment. I was not accustomed to seeing adults. Uh, use words like that, and I—I I mean, the the look on my face. Jacob talks about it to this day. I don't uh, remember this at all, but <laughs> I, I got to tell you that as the the summer went on, my language became worse and worse. You know? <laughs> as I became more and more tired, and my patience level was less and less. You know, my I, I had pretty salty language in those days, so I probably didn't even think about you being in the car. It was, I don't know if I'm sorry that that happened. Or no, hey. A slice of reality. You know? But I want to tell the <laughs> other part of that story, but maybe not that one. So Micah had a couple of asthma attacks while he was at um, uh, cool. Gucci. And one day I get a phone call 
and um, I happened to have been in the office and the staff came to me and she said, Macy, Mike is on the phone. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, that's got to be something is really wrong. So I get on the phone to Micah because they're not supposed to be able to make calls. <clears throat> and Ron, Micah says, hey, Dad, I'm in the emergency room at such and such hospital. I said, what? And he told me he had an asthma attack and he saw a phone. He just picked it up, decided to call me on it. Smart and kid. Our, our position was is that no kid got to call their parent about being in an emergency oh, room. Oh, I'm sure he, he didn't have permission to do that. <laughs> no, I did oh, not. I, oh, it was just such a shocker to me <laughs> that I'm getting a call from Micah in the emergency room. So, anyway. <laughs> I knew I wasn't supposed to. I, I thought it was funny. Uh, somewhat ironic. Um, all right, number uh, number four. Uh, what was the uh, the quickest hook you ever had to give to a counselor uh, in the summer? What, what was the shortest tenure you ever had for, oh, for a counselor? Well, I didn't I didn't fire a lot of counselors, but I'll tell you that when I was uh, an assistant director at Owen Sang, uh, we had a counselor. Uh, this guy was uh, staff orientation was a great. A great counselor. I think it was his first summer camp, and he was so personable. And we we made him the uh, the uh, head counselor for the oldest boys' cabin. And uh, first day of camp happened. The kids arrived. Kids go to bed at night. About six o'clock in the morning, I get a knock on my door, and it's the CIT in the cabin of the junior counselor, and he tells me the guy's gone. That this boy had packed up in the middle of the night and left. Any explanation? I never, I I think I tried to call him. I never talked to him again. I never encountered him again in my life. So he was a counselor for a few hours. Wow. (laughs) And he was gone. I didn't didn't fire him. (laughs) But he was gone. He fired me. (laughs) So, um, so, as Ron and like Ron, I never really fired um, a lot of counselors. I had some real brushes. I had a, uh, Michael, what was the thing that Adam wrote? Uh, what was it? Oh, a manifesto. Yeah. There was a summer like that. But I just remember, um, again, back to uh, something that Sarah's going to be appalled at. Wait, if I can just, I hold on, let me let me just jump in here for a second, because yeah. no one's going to get that reference, but I, I feel like it is worth... Appalled? Uh, it, well, it's worth at least uh, explaining man, what that means. Uh, I, I, I have it in my mind what it means, and I sense a rebellion yes. of the so counselors. My understanding, and I would love to know their demands. Yeah, and actually, well, sort of. Uh, that's similar to what it was. And Ron, I'd actually be curious to know from your point of view if, if, if this... It seems to me that there was a cycle at Jacobs where every, I don't know however many years, but some number of years after counselors were, I guess, familiar enough or had been there long enough, were sick of Macy's bullshit long enough, that uh, they would uh, take a stand for what they thought uh, you know, should or shouldn't be the way things were done. And one of my best friends, uh, I was there one of the summers that this happened, and he wrote this, I mean, Martin Luther would have been proud uh, you know, like his 95 theses, he wrote it on butcher paper in, uh, in pencil and posted it in Macy's office. He's a smart kid. He went to Penn. He probably was thinking about Martin Luther when he wrote it. Um, 
with this whole list of like all the things that were wrong about camp and horribly misspelled. Number one, boys should be able to have earrings. Number two, yeah. kids should be able to strike out. Number three, we want dances. <laughs> I, it was, I don't know if any of those were on there. Maybe the earrings, but uh, anyway, that's what Mace is referring to when he says the manifesto. Ron, did you ever have like summers like that where just the staff just kind of just didn't, you know, didn't gel and? Yeah, well, I I don't remember ever having a rebellion, you know, against me or my policies. I remember very well though that we did have a summer that I called uh, the summer of the top deck wars, where all of the the unit heads, the program director. And uh, educators, whoever was on, that's what we call the leadership staff, the top deck, uh, did not get along. As a matter of fact, there was, might have been the same summer. There was one summer where they had each dated each other and broken up before the summer. And, and there was a lot of shit Sounds going on. Right. And that was a really rough summer. Plus, there weren't any condoms around. <laughs> really? So I, that I remember. But there were, there were times when there were rebellions in camp. What I remember mostly were about supervision. That counselors, this only happened once or twice. What they expressed was that they were, they felt they were being watched. To which I said, well, the job of your unit head is to watch you. So yeah, you're being watched. (laughs) But, you know, that's what it means to be a supervisor. And we had these conversations that went back and forth. Never was any real animosity. Nobody posting grievances on my <laughs> my doors, I recall. Not really. Macy, well, did you finish uh, your answer? Yeah, sorry. They're, they're, that's all right. But those things were cyclical. Um, and this was a year where the chemistry among a few in the staff, because they had grown up there, and um, I think there was a confidence level that you could uh, say anything to me and uh, – and um, that you had a voice, and in this case, it was uh, it was a pretty. Um, it was just like well, you can't see it. It was just a gigantic piece on butcher paper, and I still have it. As a matter of fact, didn't I loan it to you not long a few years At ago? At his wedding, Michael? I took it to his wedding. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, the closest I ever came was one of our foreign staff. Um. And I asked my mom and dad to meet the plane. And this was coming from Camp America. So, you know, the screenings for those folks were a lot different than the screenings that we did when we were recruiting in Israel from the Soknut for the Israeli staff. And I didn't allow, Sarah, not only did I not allow boys to have an earring, I didn't allow girls to have nose rings. <laughs> And I didn't allow them to have pierces between their eyebrows. And you know, I, I think you knew me when I had one of those. Yeah, well, I don't know why you yeah. don't have it now if it was so important to you then. But anyway. There are a lot of things that so I don't have now that were dad, important to me when I was in my 20s. My mom and dad were asked to help me out and pick up this person coming. It was a night flight coming from England. And they pick her up, and I'm meeting her. I'm meeting him, my mom and dad, halfway between on one of the Highway 18, as we called it, Highway 18. <laughs> and she has not just a nose ring. She's got the one the size of a symbol. 
on a drum set in her <laughs> nose. <laughs> and she had a thing. And my mom and dad said to themselves, they relayed to me, oh, my God, Macy's <laughs> not going to like this because they, they knew that this was going to be tough. So I picked her up. I brought her back to camp. She's probably jet lagged pretty well. We go into to my office. And my assistant director was there because we were anxious to meet her and welcome her to the staff. And I just, I just gave her an opportunity right then and there to either rid herself of that gigantic symbol that was piercing her nose and the piercing between her eyebrows. And it may have been a chain, too, that went down. I can't remember. Or we could take her back to the airport. Oh, that is uh, harsh. If if she wanted to stay. And she decided, so this is the better part of the story, she decided to remove that. She wrote her mom, who wrote me a letter, thanking me (laughs) and her child. You know, she's in her early 20s, late teens, I don't remember, but thanking me for getting all that. And she was pretty honest about what she thought about her daughter having that. And she was very appreciative of that. Again, this is not the way I thought the story was going to end. (laughs) I'm sorry to keep disappointing you, Sarah. (laughs) No, you're surprising me, not disappointing me. It's a surprise. All right, last uh, last question. Uh, you, you, you both uh, shepherded a lot of children through uh, very awkward years uh, to, into you know, their adult lives. But when you look back, what, what's the kid who was the biggest pain in the ass uh, as a camper who most exceeded your expectations uh, as an adult? Yeah, well, I have uh, one that the first one that comes first of all, there's quite a few. There's quite a, one of the things that you know is the real strength of our camps is the patience I think we have with kids that are difficult. You know, and um, I mean, I often used to say, you know, that it's not just that uh, uh, you know we're we're there for campers, but we need to uh, we need to absorb the campers that are tough ones. We, we need to be there for the ones that actually need us. Uh, I had a camper, we had a camper, and uh, I just say that his first name is Doug, and he was a very mean kid um, when he was a camper. As a matter of fact, he tormented some other campers. He was on, on the verge where you would say, well, maybe this kid shouldn't be a camper. Um, but he was a brilliant kid, and I think that's probably why he made it through camp, because he was also funny and liked him but if he had it out for if there was a weakling he would he would find them out you know and, and he would work on them um so this this kid became the best counselor that you could imagine uh and the, and one of the best leaders in camp when he was in college it's to credit to the camp that we stuck with him that long because when he did come back to be on staff i mean and I used to say, you know, it takes sometimes it takes a person who has really been uh, horrible to understand those kids, those mm-hmm. kids who are the ones on the fringe, the kids who can't follow the rules, the kids who are in trouble, whatever. And he just became the best. He was a staff member for a long time. He 
He ran kitchen for a while. I mean, he did a lot of different jobs at at King. And uh, and by the way, he became a very responsible and wonderful adult. Uh, I won't tell you what he does, uh, but he's and he's an artist and he's a singer and guitar player and just a fine person. But I'm not sure I would have predicted that. You know, I remember when we were going through hiring at Green and we would come across like a, a applicant who had been a really jerky camper. I could think of one in particular also named Doug, oddly enough. The same kid, and huh? I, I don't think so. And he was just like a little shit. And he became, you know, we were really hesitant whether or not to even hire him as a counselor, but he had been at camp so many years. It's like, you kind of just have to give them a chance. And then you put them with the best counselor that you can put them with. And you put them in the place where you think that they can do the least harm. Um, And this guy was probably one of the best counselors I've ever seen in my whole life. He was absolutely amazing. Um, And yeah, people are really surprising. And I think it also goes to show you that in general, people turn out just fine. <laughs> That's what you know. If you've been at work with kids for long enough and you see enough kids grow up, you realize everyone's pretty much going to be okay. The other thing about this kid that I was talking about, Doug, is that when he became a senior counselor, he was the one we used to give the weakest chronic <laughs> junior counselors to. You know, and sometimes he resented that a lot, but he was so strong and he was such a good mentor. It was so good that, you know, sometimes it happens. The best counselors, you know, are the ones who end up getting their third choice for a unit or whatever. But, uh, right, because you know that you can put them anywhere and you really need them in a strong position. It's a blessing and a curse to be a great counselor. Well, that, I used to get a lot of crap about that because people would say, you know, <clears throat> the, the reward for being a really good counselor for a second, after first session, for the second session, is being paired with a really shitty one. First counselor. So my answer to the question is, and again, it's along the lines of Ron's. We had, uh, I used to say, you know, I don't like this. I don't like this kid or I don't like this staff member, but he or she's good. And I can't put my own feelings <clears throat> on whether or not I should give this role model to kids because I don't like them. Because if they're doing their job, um, then I need to have them there. That was the idea. Um, and there are, I mean, I could start reeling off presidents of congregations, presidents of school boards, elected officials, people that just because, and, and who, who attribute some of their successes to the sort of the, the esprit de corps, the, um, the culture of, of Jacob's camp. So to me, it's just, there's not one, there's so many. And I think Ron probably feels the same way because his influence vicariously um, in some sense of instilling what his standards were for my children, as far as the counselors that they had. And when they were there in um, roles themselves, has impacted their lives. I'd like to think that I've had that same opportunity and I, I get to hear that um, quite quite often and it's gratifying because, you know, we had a chance to, to step up to the plate, so to speak. 
Well, we very much enjoyed this. Thank you both so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Ron, it's always good to see you. Dad, it's mostly usually good to see you. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, you as well. Well, it was my pleasure, guys. Sarah, you yeah, too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I loved it. Loved it. Thank you. All right, thanks, thanks guys. Thanks, Ron, for what you did to my kids. <laughs> yeah, what I did. Thanks for what you did to me, you bum. <laughs> <laughs> That was a lot of fun. I hope it wasn't uh, too much navel-gazing, too inside baseball with all the talk about Jacobs and Gucci. Um, But it was really interesting to hear their perspectives. Um, And, uh, you know, for those that got the opportunity to go to camp uh, when both of them were directors, it really was a magical time. Um, Would love to hear your stories, frankly, about your camp directors uh, and what their uh, reputations were like and some of your favorite stories, uh, of, uh, of camp directors. Um, in the meantime, uh, again, please feel free to give us a rating or review on iTunes. You can follow the show on social media at summer camp pod on Twitter and on Facebook and, uh, at campfires and color wars on Instagram. Sarah's out this week, but if you want to follow along with her adventures over the summer, you can follow her on Instagram at Sarah Ballin. And if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at Micah Hart, and I'm Moonlight on Instagram, making fun of my favorite game, Words with Friends, at RejectedWWF. And with that, we will say goodnight. Don't waste a minute, Micah. Don't waste a minute, Micah. Happiness runs in a circular motion. Thought is like a little boat upon the sea. Everybody is a part of everything anyway. You can have everything if you let yourself be.